Teaching is the career up for discussion on today's podcast. Our guest today has designed and taught writing and communication courses at the undergraduate and MBA level for nearly a decade. His publications include articles in contemporary liberal arts as well as writing curriculum in general education courses. Prior to academia, he worked in strategic communications at Booz Allen Hamilton where he developed stakeholder outreach initiatives. Since then, he has taught various courses at UCLA and Loyola Marymount University. He's currently assistant professor of clinical business communications at University of Southern California. It is my pleasure to introduce Andrew Ogilvie on today's podcast and discuss with him the journey of his job. You are listening to The Career Show, a podcast that helps you find the right career and inspires you to follow your passion. My name is Trishan Kanchanjani and I'm a student seeking answers to career-based questions that we all have. I'm here to sit down with career specialists and talk to them about the lessons learned during the journey of their career. Thanks so much for having me, Trishank. I'm honored, honored to be here. Thank you. So I want to start off by talking to you about your passion for teaching. When did you know you wanted to become a teacher and what persuaded you to become a teacher? Was it one of your own teachers that inspired you while you were at school and university or was it something else? I think like most people, what I've observed with most people is that the career that we end up in is not necessarily the career that we always thought we would go into. And the way I would describe my path to teaching is that both my parents were teachers and I always knew that at some point I would want to get into teaching, but I didn't know what that would look like exactly. And I also, sports were a big part of my life growing up as well. And so coaching was kind of a big theme, right? Coaches in, when you play sports as a, as a young kid, like your coaches are, play a big role in your life. So I think I felt that I was going to graduate from undergrad and then go into the corporate world and then see what happens. And, that, and that's actually what happened. So I, I was in the corporate world for about 10 years when I realized I wasn't finding it as meaningful as, as I'd like. I wasn't finding the thing that was driving me. And I said, um, I'm going to go back to graduate school for, for literature and, and see what happens. And um, I thought that I could go to grad school for literature and see what happens. And if one plan would be to just to, to teach high school English somewhere, and I would really enjoy that, you know, talk about books, talk about ideas, talk about theory. And um, so what happened is that I ended up starting teaching in college. I, as, as a grad student, I started to teach the classic in the United States. It's the classic college writing course. And um, I absolutely loved it. And it just took off from there. So that's how I, that's how I got into teaching. I think it's, in, um, it's a little bit in the family DNA. My dad was an engineer for a while and then he became a teacher, but there was like sort of always this, this kind of appreciation, a, a respect and an admiration in my family's DNA for teaching, I think, even though it might be implicit at times. So. No, I completely agree with you because my dad's a businessman, right? And mm, while, yeah. while growing up, I always knew that I wanted to become a businessman at some point in my life. I mean, it's still pretty early on in my career, 
but I can definitely see myself either running my dad's business or starting something of my own 10 years down the line. Yeah, exactly. Right. There's a, you know, that we kind of grow up in these containers and these containers are shaping us in very complex ways. And sometimes we, you know, some, sometimes naturally we try to step outside the container, but we're still in trying to step outside of it. We're still being shaped by it. Exactly. So, yeah. But when you were teaching or you were in school and university, teaching methods were completely different and teaching has evolved over the years. So what are the main differences you can recall in terms of stories between you learning back then from your teachers and you teaching right now? So what has been like the biggest difference in the teaching methods? That a lot of what we think about teaching came from intuitive ideas about learning and communication. So, you know, a general idea would be um, if Trishank is a student of mine, I'm going to tell him some stuff and he's going to absorb it and he's going to learn and, and um, you know, and that's teaching. And I think what's happened over, you know, over time is that we've learned more and more about the science of learning. And we realize that teaching is a lot more than just telling people things and then telling them to remember it and then asking them to tell us, tell that stuff back to us. I do think that, you know, there historically, there's always been great teachers, you know, there's always been great teachers. And I think what happens is, um, for me, what I always remember about teachers that I really liked, and I think this is unique to me, perhaps, or, or I, I'd like, I, I want to frame it as perhaps unique to me, is that they always made it about more than just learning. You know, it was always, more, it was, it was personal, it was human, it was passionate, it was emotional. But I think what we realize more and more is that learning is really complex. You know, that, that, that when someone learns something and even defining what learning is, is really complex. So, yeah. yeah, I agree with you when you say learning is complex, but do you think that in that case, you need to teach every student differently? This is a really complex question. And I think that we, what every, any teacher must do is balance what would I like to do and what's possible? So if you're a fifth grade teacher in the United States and you have 40 students, sure, you would love to give each of them individual attention and craft something unique for each of them, but you also just have to make sure that everybody gets something, right? So for me, I think one of the things that I love about teaching at USC, one of the things I love about the writing classes that I teach is that they are small, you know, about 19 students max. And what I do always say to students is that the most effective way to, for this course to work is, is, or the number one factor that will support learning in our course is the degree to which you and I talk with one another. And at the core, I can learn more about your thinking in our discussions. And then I can kind of go from there. But it's also helpful at the beginning of the semester to talk to students about what their dreams are, what are their goals, and so if I do, you know, and if I am talking to a student about a project or something, I often try to um, orient the project around their goals. You know, so I'll say, oh, you're an accounting major, right? Well, here's how this project might, you know, here's what, what we're learning this project might help for someone who, who wants to be an accountant. This is what I try to do. It doesn't mean that I always do it well, but this is what I try to do. I was in your class and mm. I, I really enjoyed talking to you about my goals, my passions. And I think that's how you learned the most about me. 
which mm-hmm. further helped you design the class in a way that was most helpful for me. And I think kudos to you for doing that. <laughs> Thanks. But if I could talk about the three main questions that you're obsessed with, um, you've mentioned this in class, this is mentioned on your bio, um, you researched about this, you consult about this. And the three questions are, how do people learn? How do people use what they have learned? And how do we, how do you help people learn better? So I wanted to ask you, how did you come across these questions? But more importantly, what's your purpose behind focusing on these questions? Hmm. Those are great questions. I think I've always been obsessed or just generally interested in, in learning, you know, even my own learning. Like how do I go from one state of not knowing to another state of knowing? And then what does that mean? And what does that mean for me? So, but these questions, for example, the first one of like, how do people learn began within my PhD program. And during my PhD in my field, writing studies, which is a group of people or a group of people who teach and study writing in the United States, but also around the world too. Um, mostly at the higher ed level, we study writing at the higher le- ed level and, and professional writing. There's this big question called the question of transfer. And the transfer is this assumption that you learn something in a class and then you transfer that knowledge when you when you go to write in another situation or context. And what we know is that it sounds simple, right? You learn something, you use it. But what we know when you really start to sit with it and focus on it, is that it's far more complex than, than that. And that when you break it apart, you know, you can kind of see these different, you actually see these different phases. And one is just the learning phase. So you can't really study whether or not someone is using what they're learning until you really understand what it what did it look like when they learned did they learn that thing and um how do we define learning so that question was was a hot question in the field of writing studies when i was doing my dissertation and that's those are the those essentially are the questions that framed up my dissertation where i studied two students over five years and i studied what they learned and whether or not what they learned was being, they were using it as they went to write in different scenarios. Um, and I think I, for me, the purpose of these questions, I think that what we can often do as teachers, but also as a consultant. So I'm, you know, I'm designing some communications training right now for a utility company. And if I don't ask this question, how, how is the, you know, how are these people going to learn best? What I'm at the risk of doing, like if I don't sit with that question and think about it deeply, I'm just going to produce something that in many ways could just, they could just sit, you know, experience it for one hour and then it, and then it's just gone. You know, they just, it doesn't sit with them. It doesn't, they don't absorb it. They don't weave it into their, what we might call like a a mental model or schema. Um, And so I'm particularly interested in it sounds funny, but I think like even the class that you were in, what I have to do is sell the class to you. you know, I have to sell it. And I think a lot of people, um, understandably in higher ed, won't like the way that I describe that. You know, like I don't, the idea would be, well, we, we shouldn't sell classes to students. They, you know, if they, if they want to take it, they should just take it. But I don't see it as a problem. I, I see it as actually part 
of the learning and not separate from the actual subject matter. Yeah, I think your, your ideology, again, is something that, that is taught to us in business school, right? They tell yeah. us that when you're starting off a company, you should know the questions that you're trying to answer for your customer. And I think your customers are students and you're doing a great job by asking those questions to yourself, which are most impactful to your customers that are students. That's a great point. And I often, I often talk about teaching similarly to the way you just discussed it, which is, so if you're, if you're a company, my own view is, you know, the number one thing you must focus on is who, who are my users? What problems do they have and what problems am I solving for them? And your success, I would argue, rests on your ability to really get who these users are. It's no different in teaching. So the more I can understand my users, the people who are using the course, using the knowledge, using the tools, the better, you know, the more I understand them, the better the course will go. So you're, you're, you're absolutely right. That is, a, that is exactly how I think about it. That's amazing. And you, you said that you did your PhD, you were already teaching when you were a grad student. So becoming a teacher is such a long process, right? Because I think all that I'm going to do is like finish my undergrad degree, but becoming a teacher, you need to get a doctorate. You need to write and publish papers. It's a long journey. So what has been one of the biggest challenges for you as a teacher while going through the process of becoming a teacher? I think one of the hardest things about being a teacher while becoming a teacher is confronting uncertainty you know, and confronting not knowing. And so for example, when I first started teaching I, you know, over 10 years ago, I had all of these ideas. And I think that you, you know, I had a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of ideas, but I didn't, and this is fine, I didn't know a lot about teaching. You know, I didn't understand a lot about, I didn't have a language for teaching. And that's really what you develop. Um, that's what I developed in my PhD program, but that's what I developed over time, just trying learning about learning, right? You need a language for learning. And, um, and so when you first start off, it's, it's a little bit, the metaphor would be, it's a little bit like driving across the United States, you know, only at night and you only have your headlights. You don't have any streetlights, right? Like, you will, you can get there, but it's, it's a scary kind of thing because you can only see a few feet ahead of you. Um, you also, as a teacher, you're just going to be confronted with days when things just don't go well. They just don't go well. And the risk is to over consider it to, to, to say, I mean, I think this is natural for a lot of people to say, I'm just a horrible teacher. <laughs> you know, you just kind of have a day where you go, no one was paying attention. Everyone seemed uninterested. And you, what you must do is learn from those days, but also keep going and not take it too seriously. You know, not, not beat yourself up too much because it's easy to do that. And so I think this is it. It's just confronting not knowing, confronting uncertainty. And if you think about, like, the other point that I would make about teaching is you look out on, you know, 20, 30 humans looking at you going, what are we doing? What, what, what are you going to do that's going to make me interested or make me learn something? And it, and it can be, it's electric and, and it also very daunting at times. So 
That was actually my next question. You mentioned mm. that teaching is a language. And what I wanted to ask you is like, while you do your doctorate, you do your PhD, you gain all the knowledge you need to teach. However, the ability to connect and teach students is another task in itself. For example, um, while I was in Hong Kong a couple of years ago, I took up this part-time job wherein I used to teach English to students in Hong Kong. However, I realized that I had the skill to like talk English, but I did not have the skill to teach. And I think that's a completely different dimension mm. in itself. So do you think like people should be aware about this ability that they have to connect and teach students before they start off? Or is that something they, they learn as they teach? Can I ask you a question um, about your experience? Why, why do you think you, you know, you had the skills to teach someone English, but you, you didn't have the teaching skills. What would you, what, what was missing? Do you think? I think I was missing the skills to teach the language the way I was taught. The reason I can call myself a native English speaker is because my basics were really strong. However, I was unable to teach the same basics of pronouncing A, B, and C to the student, right? So two, two, two ways of answering that question. Um, I think I was maybe five or four or five years into teaching when I realized, when I realized this, that the challenge of teaching is forgetting how you've learned everything. And what I mean by that is you, when you learn a concept or when you think, when you think something, how you learn that concept or how you think about it has its own, we might call like its own linguistic architecture that's unique to you, right? That, like you use certain words to describe a concept. And so the, the challenge is innately what we want to do is we want to describe and when we're teaching, we want to teach using a language that is we, what we intuitively we're hardwired to teach using a language that makes complete sense to us. And that might work for a quarter of your students or half of your students. And so what you must do, and this is why I think it's so hard, is again, I, I emphasize the hardwired nature of it, right? Just like when you're ever explaining something to someone and they don't get it, you know, you kind of want to go like, well, what don't you get, you know? And what essentially they're saying to you is like, the language you're using to describe this thing doesn't have, doesn't make sense to me. You know, there's no, there's no meaning. So the art of teaching is actually trying to disrupt that hardwired impulse and, and reverse it and unravel it and go, well, actually there's other ways of describing what I'm talking about. And so you'll never, you know, like what you do is you hypothesize like, okay, I'm going to take this concept and rather than explain it in the one way that I understand it, I'm going to try to like, it's going to manifest itself in three different ways, you know, and I'm going to try to use language, even though that language isn't how I exactly understand it, you know, and I think, I think this is the art. So um, Steven Pinker, the famous, you know, um, Harvard, I believe he's a neuro, neuro linguist or anyways, um, he calls it the curse of knowledge. So the more you know something, the harder it is to explain it to people. Because you cannot imagine what it would be like to not know that thing. So to go to your second point, though, about connecting, I think there are lots of great ways to be a great teacher. You know, I don't think there is one way to be a great teacher. I think it's possible for, for you to learn from someone that you might in a way that that experience is not necessarily 
super dynamic, you know, um, engaging or connected, but you just learn, you know, you just get it. And then I think, so there's a, there's a, there's a variety of ways to be a great teacher. And I think the, the challenge for any teacher is to find your, like your way. And you must be authentically you. I really believe that, you know, I think you must be authentically you. You cannot get up in front of 30, 40, 50 people for five hours straight and be someone else. Like you just, and teach cognitively, it's too demanding. And so one of the things I learned early on with teaching is that I had to be me. But, and this sounds a little bit contradictory, that person I am teaching is fully me, but there's also a quality where it's a persona. You know, and, and I don't mean persona in like a fake way, but what I think about it is um, there are comedians who in person might be very introverted and, and quiet, but when they get up on stage to do a stand-up, they're very, you know, they're, 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 they put on this kind of persona. And so I think many, many teachers might not, might not like this idea, but I, I do think it's a performance. Like, I don't think you're merely a vehicle for information. You know, you don't just like the information doesn't just pass through you into the student. Like it's far more complex. It's a, it's a performance. And once you start to embrace that idea that it's a performance, that it's a persona, that then for me, um, you know, I haven't gotten into the connecting part, but I think just at the, and the other, the other point that I'd make is that I think anyone can be a great teacher. I don't think that there's any requirements. I think that it's easier to be a great teacher if you're naturally curious about humans you do not get to choose your students and you must find value and meaning and interesting things in every student that you have. No, I think that is super important, especially the first point you mentioned that you need to let go of the way you were taught things. Cause I think that is the biggest mistake I was, I was making, right? I was trying to teach the students the way I was learned, which might've either been outdated or would not have been engaging enough for the student who's receiving that thing. So I think that is one mistake that I made as a teacher, which all the other teachers listening should not in the future. <laughs> well, what I would say is that let's reframe it, not as a mistake, but that you were learning. You know? and, then, and then you have to build into your teaching practice time to not get it right. You know, like, so maybe with this, and it's hard because you feel bad, I'm sure, right? You're like, oh, 10 minutes and we haven't, you know, but that's just, that's part of the teaching practice. And that if you do that multiple times and then you try some stuff, you finally get it. It's a really nice moment. But, but talking about the connecting aspect with students, right? Attention span of my generation and the generation after me is reducing year after year. So how do you make sure that students stay focused and attentive during classes that last for as long as an hour? I mean, I know it was super hard for me when I was in my freshman year, sophomore year and junior year. In fact, even still, especially when it's online, it's even harder to concentrate because I have so many distractions around me in the house. So how do you think a teacher navigates through that problem? Well, I have news, <laughs> I have news for you too, because um, my own hypothesis is that it's not just your generation or younger generations. When I do consulting for people who are in their you know, 40s, 50s, and 60s, um, their attention spans uh, are, are compromised. I think all of ours are the, um, it's such a good question. And I think it goes back to the point I was making earlier that it begins with selling the knowledge, you know, selling it, right? That it's my responsibility 
to get you to care about it, to, to find ways to unlock in you the belief that I should pay attention right now because I need this knowledge. And I didn't know I needed it. The other thing to, to negotiate attention spans is that most of us, none of us want to sit sedentary. You know, none of us want to sit motionless for more than what, seven minutes, right? We shift in our seat, you know, and not all students like this, but I'd say most do. And I know, I know you did, is that it feels great to be heard. So, and you know, I, I have a three and a half year old and a two year old, and in a way, all, all they want is to be heard, you know, to know that I'm listening to them, that they matter. And so what I must do to negotiate attention span things is to think, how can I make every single person in this class feel that their ideas, that their knowledge matters, you know, in a really authentic way. And so I, I think that if I can create a, a class, like a class session where we're talking, where we're listening, where we're sharing ideas, where we feel like our ideas matter, that I don't even have to think about attention span. You know, I don't even have to worry about it just because the focus is, um, is not so much, but this is a focus at times, right? But like the best scenarios are where the focus isn't so much on like, how do I, how do I keep people paying attention? But more like, how do I create an awesome intellectual engaging experience where people feel like they're heard, where people feel like they can propose ideas. And um, uh, another, I, another way I think about college is that the purpose of college is also just to have adults listen to you and hear you out and go, that's a cool idea, Trishank. And then, and then they build on it, right? And say, oh, Trishank, that's a cool idea. Like, it makes me, what you just said makes me think of this, you know? And I, I don't know, my, my assumption is that as, as teenagers and, you know, my, you might not have had those kinds of experiences. And what are, what are we doing? We're preparing you to join conversations in the future with organizations you want to join and you know, companies you want to build yourself. Like, you're going to have to start conversations with people and talk with people and listen to them. No, you're completely right when you say like, I love speaking, right? Like I think people love talking and being able to listen is one of the biggest skills if you want to excel because people love talking. And if you're a good listener, you're the perfect person for them. (laughs) Totally. It's so true. So when you mentioned about your students entering the corporate world, I thought about practice communications, your company, which has the goal of making sure that corporate teams become clear, persuasive, and confident writers. Do you want to talk briefly about your vision with that initiative, how you came up with it, and how you balance it with teaching? Well, first, I'd say that I am 98% a teacher and practice is 2%. So I've worked on, over the past three years, I've worked on two projects with two companies. And I think that's a great amount. One of the things that I really love about practice is that I've, I've managed to integrate my life in a really interesting, in a very interesting and um, productive way. So I worked with a large consulting firm as part of practice to do some communications workshops and, and to learn about their communication practices And I take all of that data and knowledge and I put it in the class, right? So that if Trishank is in my class, I can say now, and and the truth is I couldn't say this 
before I did, before, before I did this, I can say to you, Trishan, hey, Trishan, if you want to go into consulting, here's the kind of communicator you need to be. And I know this because last night I just was interviewing a partner at a consulting firm. You know, and this is the kind of writing and communicating that he's looking for. So I like this because it makes me feel more confident as a teacher. There is the story that I will tell, and I can only tell it from the United States perspective, the story that I tell of, of communication learning and writing in, in, in K-12 education and higher ed it really reductively is this. And this was my experience. And I don't want to make this clear. This is not a necessarily, this is not a critique of any single person. This is just the reality that most of the writing, and I'd love to hear your take from your perspective of your own experience. Most of the writing that we do in K through 12 and in higher ed, is not that meaningful. And partly the reason why is because we're just writing for a grade. And what we're not writing for is a human. We're not writing for someone to read and then act on our ideas. We're just writing to show the teacher that we read the book. We're writing the to show the teacher that we know grammar. And so there is a belief, if you were to Google employees can't write, right? if you were to Google that phrase, you'll find there's all these articles about companies saying, oh, our employees can't write, our under, our, you know, these recent college grads can't write. Or, and um, so I think there's this gap, meaning there's this level or ability that organizations want their employees writing at, and, and they're not. And so practice tries to fill that gap. And what I try to do is give everybody a set of tools for communicating and writing better. And, that, and that's, that's it really in a nutshell. I don't think that it is only a United States thing. I think it is a global thing. Because even in India, where I did my middle and high school, most of my writings were based on fiction. A lot of my writing assignments were subjective, making it harder for others and especially my teachers to understand because I was solely writing for myself. So I really like your vision with practice communications and best of luck for it. Mm. There are a lot of good reasons to write for ourselves. Like, I think it's great to write fiction. I think it's great to write poetry. The challenge is when it starts it's hard to grade those things when you're just, you know, if someone, if a student is writing for themselves, how do you grade it? But the second part is that we also need to do writing for other humans. You know? Correct. Like how do we, how do we give someone directions to get somewhere? How do we communicate someone an explanation of a, a new software tool that they need to use? Like this is important stuff. So. Yeah, no, completely agree. But we spoke about your students. I wanted to know what kind of a student were you while you were growing up? Were you one of those mischievous ones or were you like who always went off the teacher and spoke to the teacher all the time? I was a powerfully mediocre student. And what I mean by that is, and I laugh about it, but the truth is just that I, uh, I liked my teachers and I was engaging with them. I'm a, I'm a quick thinker, you know, I'm not, I'm not organized, right? I'm not a very organized, like I'm a, I can, I'm a quick thinker. So I could, I could think quickly on my feet in class and come up with an answer or something like that. Um, but I, but I wasn't good at like the long-term substantive, you know, spending time with a project. And so that's the kind of student that I was. Um, mm -hmm. But when I did, um, when I did like something I could get, I could really throw myself into it. But you said you were an engaging student with your teachers. And that's something that I was talking about, right? 
Do you uh, look yeah, for yeah. similar students in class, like your class? And was I one of them? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Because I think that, um, I think that I was born, part of who I am is just that I like connecting with people. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I almost feel odd if I don't connect with someone. If I'm, if I'm working or teaching or, you know, engaging with them in some relatively intimate experience you know yeah you and i are similar you you're just you're just interested you know you just you're just genuinely i remember you and i um our class was really late at night right and we would walk uh we would leave for tita and we'd have these great discussions and um that to me is the the stuff of college you know the real i'm learning a lot from you all and um it's a two-way street yeah oh yeah for sure for sure. And, and, and those are the moments too. And the one I think, I get, this is my job. I get paid to do this. I get paid to talk to smart, thoughtful, young people. This is wonderful. But when you're starting the podcast, you mentioned teachers can have a bad day when no one listens to you. So yeah. do you think that some students can be rude and insulting in class? Have you ever taught such students who are rude in class? And how can teachers deal with such rude students? Yes, and um, I have, and I've been teaching for ten years at, you know, Loyola Marymount, UCLA, UC Santa Barbara, USC, MBA programs, and it, it, it can be very challenging. It is the exception. It is two percent. However, depending on that that two percent, they can have an outsized effect in the class, right? That, and so. One of the things that I learned in my PhD program is, is the best thing you can do, and it's not always easy to do this, is that you must just try and understand people. So I had a student who, for example, I don't know what it was, and she just, it's every time I started to kind of talk about stuff, she would immediately start talking to the student next to her. And, um, I don't do discipline, right? I, 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 the, partly because I feel that unless you're inter, unless there's someone who's interrupting the class kind of, but like, otherwise it, like you have to meet me halfway or, or somewhere. And so there's going to be students who don't want to do that. And I, I just can't, you know, at a certain point, like I, 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 I'll give them everything I've got, but at a certain point, if they don't want to be engaged, um, you know, I can't, that, that's fine. I've done everything I can, right? And this is very rare. I want to miss it. It's very rare. So, the best thing that you can do, I think as a teacher to handle disrespectful students is one, is actually just really talk to them and, and level with them. And so after class, you can say something like, hey, fill me in, like, how's this class, how's this class working out for you? You know, is, it like a, is there anything I could do differently? And then I could say, you know, one of my goals of this class is to have a really um, engaging, fluid discussion and, um, but sometimes I have to talk, you know, and I notice that there's times when, you know, you, you, you're talking while I'm talking and I, I just fill me in what, what's, you know, what's going on. And there's this sort of diffusing that you try to do, you know what I mean? Rather than try to escalate it. But, but if I could change gears, I wanted mm-hmm. to, I wanted to ask you about a statement a lot of people believe in. A lot of people believe that teachers are underpaid. What are your thoughts on that? But also, what is a teacher's primary motive? Is it money or is it actually they just want to spread knowledge or is it a mix of both? 
two things before I begin to answer the question. One is when we say teachers, we're talking about lots of different kinds of people. So if, if, if when we're using the word teachers, we're talking about law school professors and business professors, um, that's a lot different than being a first grade teacher in a you know, rural, rural area of, um, of the United States or something, right? But I think it's still a really valid question. The other thing that I would say too, is I can't, um, I clearly am not speaking for all teachers. So let's take your, the last question you asked. Do teachers do this for the money? And I believe in general, people go into teaching because they're really passionate about a particular topic and they just want to share it with people. They want to share it with young people. And I do think that, so there's been a discussion in the United States um, with test scores and, oh, what if we offer a ninth grade algebra teacher a $10,000 bonus if he improves his class's scores by 15%? And what I would say, again, I am generalizing, and I can't speak for all teachers, is that that is the exact opposite of why people go into teaching. Because the other big thing, the other big reason people go into teaching is because of agency and autonomy. So I think the challenge with thinking about bonuses for teachers and, and is that that's not what really motivates them. Because I think they'd rather not have $10,000, but not teach to a test and not spend all day helping students learn how to take tests, you know, or memorize facts and things. But they'd rather have students working on self-driven projects and exploring and uncovering new things. And these are the things that you can't capture in a test. Um, but I do think, and I, you know, this is always complex too, because when we think about teacher salaries, we always, you know, to begin to think about um, tying it to the local economy and, and things like that. But in general, I think that I do two things. I think we should pay teachers more, but I also think what we should do is give teachers time to develop as teachers. So my dream for teachers, my little pipe dream would be that, they do get paid more, but they also get like every two years, they get a semester off. But what they do that semester is they study, they come up with a study project, a research project at the school that they teach at. And they observe or they analyze or they do a research project and then they share the results of that research project. So they get a little break from the classroom, but they're, but they're developing new knowledge about, about their, their field. I think that is super interesting. That's a really interesting point that you bring in. And I'll dive into it in a second. Yeah. But first, I wanted to say, I think that passion of teachers to just spread knowledge, irrespective of the money, is the reason I respect the profession so much. And from the bottom of my heart, I respect you, AJ, for teaching mm. me and other students out there. It's very thoughtful, Shashank. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Thanks. And now talking about your thought process of where do you see the education industry going? So actually that was my next question, right? You, you, you said that 
your thought process is that teachers get a semester off for every two they teach. So I wanted to ask you, where do you see the education industry going in the future? Do you see some major changes coming through? And this could also be in terms of testing students, right? Because I think that is something that is going to change in the future. Because the current test methods that we have might get outdated soon. This is a super complex question. So I'll start with, and I'm, I, I also have to admit that I'm not an expert, right, on this. I, I, I need to do more reading. There's a lot of hypotheses out there about the future of higher ed, and I can only speak for the United States, right? So the future of higher ed in the United States. There's an argument, there's a professor of business at NYU named Scott Galloway, and he's arguing, I think essentially his argument is that there's gonna be significant um, concentration and there'll be far fewer colleges and universities. And the ones that remain are gonna be able to, because of technology, are gonna be able to teach a lot more, a lot more students. I, I, okay, I don't know where higher ed teaching is going, but I do know, here, here's what I believe. I don't think that higher ed, I think the core principles and the core drivers of a great higher education experience will, will endure for a long time. And what I mean by that is this, I don't think, I don't think people, for, so one argument would be, oh, like COVID has made us realize that we could do all online. But Trishank, you're an, you're an undergrad, right? Do you wanna do four years of online education? Not at all. Right. And I think that now this does not mean that online can't work. And that if you think about the number of students go like in higher ed in the United States every year, I'm, I'm going to guess a couple hundred thousand or maybe actually maybe more than a million or so, probably more. There's a lot of variety among them, right? So if 10% of them want to do a four year undergrad all online, I think that's great. And if it works for them, I think that's great. But, and this is probably too simplistic, but do you remember when, you might be a little young, but maybe not. Do you remember when the Kindle came out and eBooks came out? Yes, I do. I do. And do you remember what everybody was saying? It won't work. Yeah, or, or I, thought, I actually thought people, what people were saying was like, this is the end of the printed book, you know? That why would I buy 10, paperback books or hardcover books when I could put them all in one. People don't like, people don't like eBooks, the way, at least the way that we thought they did. And so, but I mean, the, 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 the hypothesis was that this is it, it's over. We're never gonna have books again. And I think a lot of the claims, that's just sometimes how I feel about the claims about higher ed, that higher ed is over, that, you know, you can, you know, there's just instead of four years of education, you're gonna, there's going to be a six month certificate that you get. And I just still think, and we don't necessarily have the data to prove this, but I just still think that there's just something about a four year in-person experience that's really powerful. That's cha that changes people for the better. I think, I think the main problem with online education right now, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that we are using the same techniques that we used for in-person classes for online classes, which I think people will learn over time and will make the required changes, which will make online education way more thoughtful and way more useful for students who want to do online. But I do agree with you that in-person classes won't go anywhere because that's the best way to learn by meeting people in person and sharing ideas. 
I think you're totally right that if you're teaching online, you have to try things, right? You have to try new things and it, and it has to be different. It must be different. And so I'm teaching this MS in uh, a communication course in the MS in marketing at USC. And I really love it. The students are amazing. And obviously this is all online. And last week I started off and I said, you know what? I was talking to some people you know, who, who have corporate jobs and we were talking about what's the difference between corporate life in the COVID era and co corporate life in pre-COVID. And you know, my own theory is all of what's missing is what's, a, what's missing and it seems small, but it's not, is what I would call like hall hallway chats, hallway talks. And so you're, you know, if you think about the thousands of little hallway talks you have when you're walking to a meeting or walking back from a meeting or walking to the lunch or whatever nice. it is, we're not, we're not getting those, right? We're not getting those. And so I just said at the beginning of class, I was like, we're just going to do a hallway chat. So I'm just going to, you know, we're going to do breakout rooms. I'm just going to do random rooms. and just going to talk for 10 minutes about whatever you want. And of course, my fear <laughs> is that <laughs> after three minutes, everyone's just staring at each other and that, um, or everyone's just off, they've left or something, right? But I, I just said, I'm going to give it a go. And, um, and I think it went really well. And students, uh, one of the students actually after class said, hey, like we should do more of those, you know? And so for me, it's an example of you have to rewire your thinking and that, that you're not just delivering content, you're not delivering information that I feel, I feel, I feel for a student who, you know, I'm not teaching first year students, but I, I have a, I have one class and I have a couple of first year students and I'm just like, I'm like, oh, your, your first college experience is just all on Zoom. You know, how, so how, what can we do for you? What can we make you, what can we do to make you feel connected? And I'm still looking for ideas. No, great job on the creativity to create breakout rooms. Uh, I, I think it's been a great podcast and I want to end it by asking you, my traditional last question, which people usually find tough, and it is, what is one advice you wish you had received when you were starting off your career as a professor or a teacher? This sounds crazy, but it wasn't until I was maybe four or five years into teaching that I read this book and it, and it was only like half of a chapter, but it, it talked about basic teaching principles and how people learn. And for some reason, I just never had learned those. It's basically that I learned four or five critical learning principles that completely changed how I taught my classes. They became a, a format, a template, you know, that of course that I could adapt, but I did not know these at the beginning. And so I think for anyone getting into teaching, there's a couple of great books out there. And it's just basically like the science of learning. No, it's, it's not even about subject matter, you know, it's not about, but it's the science of learning. People need examples, people need repetition, people need to see things in different contexts. And I can't believe I didn't know that at the beginning. <laughs> I think that is really great advice to just know your basic principles, but more importantly, also what you mentioned earlier in the podcast is be creative and, and look at your students and answer the questions that they want answered. And with that, I would like to thank you, AJ. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It was really great having you. And I'm sure this is going to help a lot of teachers out there. Shashank, it's, uh, it's been wonderful. And uh, I really enjoyed this conversation. So thank you. Join me next week to discuss the journey of a business developer. Until then, 
Don't forget to like, share and subscribe. Also, follow us on Instagram and LinkedIn for some exciting content throughout the week.